Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 31, with our book today, Thus Spake Zarathustra, by Frederick Nietzsche. From Thus Spake Zarathustra, by Frederick Nietzsche, the Walter Kaufman translated edition. And I quote, When Zarathustra was 30 years old, he left his home at the lake of his home and went into the mountains. There he enjoyed his spirit and solitude and for 10 years did not weary of it. But at last his heart changed and rising one morning with the rosy dawn, he went before the sun and spake thus unto it. Thou great star, what would thy happiness, what would be thy happiness if thou had not those for whom thou shinest? For ten years hast thou climbed hither unto my cave. Thou wouldst wearied of thy light and of the journey, had it not been for me, mine eagle, and my serpent. But we awaited thee every morning, took from thee thine overflow, and blessed thee for it. Lo, I am weary of my wisdom. Like the bee that hath gathered too much honey, I need hands outstretched to take it. I would fain bestow and distribute until the wise have once more become joyous in their folly and the poor happy in their riches. Therefore must I descend into the deep, as thou doest in the evening when thou goest behind the sea, and givest light also to the netherworld, thou exuberant star. Like thee I must go down, as men say, to whom I shall descend. Bless me then, thou tranquil eye, that can behold even the greatest happiness without envy. Bless the cup that is about to overflow, that water may flow golden out of it, and carry everywhere the reflection of thy bliss." Lo, this cup again, going empty itself, and Zarathustra is again going to be a man. Thus began Zarathustra's down-going. Zarathustra went down the mountain alone, no one meeting him. When he entered the forest, however, there suddenly stood before him an old man who had left his holy cot to seek roots, and thus spake the old man to Zarathustra. No stranger to me is this wanderer. Many years ago passed he by. Zarathustra, he was called, but he hath altered. Then thou carries thine ashes into the mountains, wilt thou now carry fire into thy valleys? Fearest thou not the incendiary's doom? Yea, I recognize Zarathustra. Pure is his eye, and no loathing lurketh about his mouth. Goeth he not along like a dancer? Altered is thus is Zarathustra. A child hath Zarathustra now become. An awkward one is Zarathustra. What wilt thou do in the land of the sleepers? As in the sea hast thou lived in solitude, and hath it borne thee up. Alas, wilt thou now go ashore? Alas, wilt thou again drag thy body thyself? Zarathustra answered, I love mankind. Why, said the saint, did I go into the forest and the desert? Was it not because I loved men far too well? Now I love God. Men I do not love. Man is a thing too imperfect for me. Love to man would be fatal to me. Zarathustra answered, What spake of love? I am bringing gifts unto men. Give them nothing, said the saint. Take rather part of their load and carry it along with them. That will be most agreeable unto them, if only it be agreeable unto thee. If, however, thou wilt give unto them, give them no more than alms, and let them also beg for it. No, replied Zarathustra, I give no alms. I am not poor enough for that. The saint laughed at Zarathustra and spake thus, then see to it that they accept thy treasures. They are distrustful of anchorites and do not believe that we come with gifts. The fall of our footsteps ringeth too hollow through their streets, and just as at night when they are in bed and hear a man abroad long before sunrise, so they ask themselves concerning us, Where goeth the thief? Go not to men, but stay in the forest. Go rather to the animals. Why not be like me, a bear amongst bears, a bird amongst birds? And what doeth the saint in the forest? asked Zarathustra. The saint answered, I make hymns and sing them, and in making hymns I laugh and weep and mumble, thus I do praise God. With singing, weeping, laughing, and mumbling do I praise the God who is my God, but what dost thou bring us as a gift? When Zarathustra had heard these words, he bowed to the saint and said, what should I have to give thee? Let me rather hurry, hence lest I take aught away from thee. And thus they parted from one another, the old man and Zarathustra laughing like schoolboys. 
When Zarathustra was alone, however, he said to his heart, Could it be possible this old saint in the forest hath not yet heard of it? That God is dead. From the Child Roland to the Dark Tower came by Sir Robert Browning. I'm going to open this episode after that rousing intro from Frederick Nietzsche. And I quote, again from the poem by Sir Robert Browning, My first thought was he lied in every word. That hoary cripple with malicious eye, askance to watch the working of his lie on mine, and mouth scarce able to afford suppression of the glee that pursed and scored its edge at one more victim gained thereby. My first thought was he lied in every word. The son of a Lutheran clergyman who, through his research and education in the field of philology, uh, the study of ancient languages, mostly Latin and Greek, was born in Saxony, um, a part of Germany that was not yet formed into Germany by the brutality of Otto von Bismarck in 1844. Frederick Nietzsche was a big fan of the work of the philosopher Schopenhauer, and proving to be a bit of a prodigy, he was appointed to chair of classical philology at Basel University at 23. This is kind of like peaking too early. During the totally pointless Franco-Prussian War of 1870, Nietzsche served as an ambulance driver and published his first philosophical treatise, where he began to introduce concepts that would come eventually to dominate the leadership, cultural, and moral thinking of the Western world during the long, drawn-out, and bloody 20th century. These were the ideas of the Dionysian and the Apollonian forces operating in the world, pagan ideas all, Uh, the destroyed landscape of the religious structures of Europe in light of a post-Kantian philosophy that was backed up by a fear of Napoleonic resurgence and, most influentially, the rise of deeply paganistic thinking as a way to provide an average man, an average European Christian man, meaning. Nietzsche has been claimed as the thought leader and pioneer of multiple 20th century political movements, from Marxist communism to fascism, and if you've ever heard of him, that's probably where his words and his name rings a bell in the back of your head. This is because Nietzsche, even though he only worked as an ambulance driver and then was the rest of his life an academic and then on the back end of his life very sick, he fancied himself a man of action, and he tended, as we see in the open from Thus Spake Zarathustra, his, uh, his, his, his great novel, um, well, not really novel, it's a book more of aphorisms than anything else, but um, he considered himself a man of action, and he tended to write poetically. He had a great ability to turn a phrase, which is what makes his writing so um, pleasurable and so seductive for a 19-year-old philosophical student, undergraduate philosophical student, but also makes it really seductive for a 58-year-old, for a 58-year-old academician who should know better. And this poetic writing and this great ability to turn a phrase came directly out of his education in Greek and Latin. Through Nietzsche's writing, he successfully finished the work of Kant and and uncoupled Christianity from politics in Europe and America. And by the end of the 20th century, uh, Nietzsche's efforts, lurking all the way down in the sub-basement of Western thought, would completely and totally uncouple Christianity from anything secular in a postmodern global context. One other thing you have to note about Frederick Nietzsche, and without putting too fine a point on it, he never really received very much deep critical feedback on his ideas during his actual lifetime. Well, he did receive critical feedback when he tried to go too far in this field of philology. 
um, in The Birth of Tragedy in 1872, one of his, not one of his first treatises that was actually written and published, Nietzsche did receive the following critical feedback. And I quote, but our Nietzsche, Richel would write to Wilhelm Vischer, the man who a few years before hired Nietzsche at Basel University. And by the way, this information is from the, um, <clears throat> the internet um, the Internet History of Philosophy website. So if you have an opportunity, you can go there and read all this and just just type in Frederick Nietzsche and you'll get all this information. So I go back to the quote, but our Nietzsche, Richel would write to William Vischel, the man who a few years before hired Nietzsche at Basel, it's remarkable how in one person two souls live next to each other. On the one side, the strictest method of academic scientific research. On the other, this fantastically overreaching, overenthusiastic, beat you slentsless, Wagnerian, Schopenhauerian, art mystery, religion crap. What really makes me mad is his impiety against his true mother, who had suckled him at her breast. Philology. Nietzsche, to his credit, was writing much of his quote-unquote fantastically overreaching, overenthusiastic, beat-you-senseless, Wagnerian, Schopenhauerian, art mystery, religion crap, during a time of great European cultural upheaval, primarily being driven by literature, science, and politics, where Karl Marx had published the Communist Manifesto in 1848, Charles Darwin uh, published The Origin of Species in 1859, and both of those works were careening towards a man named Sigmund Freud, who apparently knew of Nietzsche, and who would publish The Interpretation of Dreams in 1899, long after Nietzsche's sanity and life had ended. So, like many somewhat articulate and somewhat financially secure, I mean, being an academician does give you a sinecure of sorts, um, writers and thinkers who wound up punching above their weight in the longer 19th century, which began in the late 18th century and didn't really close until the abattoir of death shut down at the end of World War I in 1918, Nietzsche was able to hide an overwhelming, damaging mediocrity within a deep philosophical context. And that is what we are going to tackle today on the podcast. We're going to answer this question for leaders because, again, many of us don't think about Nietzsche anymore. We just sort of have accepted his ideas as they've been transposed down to us over the course of the last 130-some-odd years as whole cloth and it's time, well, it's time to regurgitate the meal. Back to Thus Spake Zarathustra by Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, read from the Walter Kaufman translation. Now, again, um, Walter also wrote a preface, a preface, sorry, to this uh, to this um, edition. And you can find it for free um, online if you're curious. You can go on the Project Gutenberg website um, and find a copy of uh, Thus Spake Zarathustra. Um, some of the more flowery language is directly from it's taken directly from um, the Project Gutenberg version of the uh, of the the translation, uh, and translated from the original German um, into English. You do miss some of the nuance, but you do kind of get the overall idea of, and and you do feel the overall impact of Nietzsche um, and his ideas on a Western world that was more than willing to eat them, as I said before the break. There, eat them whole cloth. From Thus Spake Zarathustra by Frederick Nietzsche. And I quote, When Zarathustra had spoken these words, he again looked at the people and was silent. By the way, this is after he comes down the mountain. There they stand, he said, said he to his heart. There they laugh, they understand me not. I am not the mouth for these ears. Must one first batter their ears that they may learn to hear with their eyes? Must one clatter like drums and penitential preachers? Or do they only believe the stammerer? They have something whereof they are proud. What do they call it? That which maketh them proud. Culture, they call it, distinguishing them from the goat herds. They dislike, therefore, to hear of contempt of themselves, so I will appeal to their pride. I will speak to them of the most contemptible thing. That, however, is the last man. 
and thus spake Zarathustra to the people, it is time for man to fix his goal, it is time for man to plant the germ of his highest hope, still his soil rich enough for it, but that soil will one day be poor and exhausted, and no lofty tree will any longer be able to grow thereon. Alas, there cometh a time when man will no longer launch the arrow of his longing beyond man, and the string of his bow will have unlearned to whiz. I tell you, one must still have chaos in one to give birth to a dancing star. I tell you, ye still have chaos in you. Alas, there cometh the time when man will no longer give birth to any star. Alas, there cometh the time of the most despicable man who cannot, who can no longer despise himself. Lo, I show you the last man. What is love, what is creation, what is longing, what is a star? So asketh the last man, and blinketh. The earth hath then become small, and on it there hoppeth the last man, who maketh everything small. His species is ineradicable, like that of the ground flea, the last man liveth the longest. We have discovered happiness, say the last men, and blink thereby. They have left the regions where it is hard to live, for they need warmth. One still loveth one's neighbor, and rubbeth against him, for one needeth warmth. Turning ill and being distrustful, they consider sinful, they walk warily. He is a fool who still stumbleth over stones or men. A little poison now and then that maketh pleasant dreams, and much poison at last for a pleasant death. One still worketh, for work is a pastime, but one is careful lest the pastime should hurt one. One no longer, be, no longer becometh poor or rich, both are too burdensome. Who still wanteth to rule, who still wanteth to obey, both are too burdensome. No shepherd and one herd. Every one wanteth the same, every one is equal. He who hath other sentiments goeth voluntarily into the madhouse. Formerly all the world was insane, say the subtlest of them, and blink thereby. They are clever, and know all that hath happened, so there is no end of their raillery. People still fall out, but are soon reconciled, otherwise it spoileth their stomachs. They have their little pleasures for the day, and their little pleasures for the night, but they have regard for health. We have discovered happiness, say the last men, and blink thereby. And here ended the first discourse of Zarathustra, which is also called the prologue. For at this point the shouting and mirth of the multitude interrupted him. Give us this last man, O Zarathustra, they called out. Make us into these last men. Then will we make thee a present of the Superman. And all the people exulted and smacked their lips. Zarathustra, however, turned sad and said to his heart, they understand me not. I am not the mouth for these years. Too long, perhaps, have I lived in the mountains. Too much have I hearkened unto brooks and trees. Now do I speak unto them as unto the goat herds. Calm is my soul and clear like the mountains in the morning, but think, they think me cold and a mocker with terrible jests. And now do they look at me and laugh, and while they laugh they hate me too. There is ice in their laughter. Moving down, descending, right, the psychological, philosophical, and moral ladder from saints to the last man, and I use both of those terms in air quotes, is an interesting concept um, brought on by Nietzsche's pagan beliefs. And this foreshadowed those pagan beliefs' firm insertion um, into the work first of Sigmund Freud, and then later his student Carl Jung, who was extremely influenced by Nietzsche, and then the Jungian idea of archetypes and of the hero's journey influenced Joseph Campbell, who thus influenced Star Wars, who thus influenced Disney, who has owned the culture in America at least for the last 90 continuous years. Except here's the thing, all these ideas abandoned or adopted uncritically really do reveal something uh, not completely thought out by Nietzsche. In abandoning Christianity, a religion Nietzsche wanted no part of, he rather preferred the Old Testament God of the Jewish people, if he were to have to prefer a religious God at all. What he failed to give account for was the total number of last men who would ruthlessly and relentlessly pursue raw power in the 20th century. Mostly in the vainglorious and bloody pursuit of organizing competition, 
as we read from Lenin earlier on an earlier episode of this podcast, or breaking some eggs like Stalin did in the Gulag Archipelago in order to make a better world. There are always more men, and there are always more appetites and always more unmet needs. The, the yawning maw of humanity's base appetites can never fully be filled, and this is the tragedy of knowledge that Christianity brings us. And salvation comes not from becoming stronger through efforts of human will. That doesn't work at all. But instead, by picking up a heavy cross and marching directly up a hill to a Golgotha and being crucified on that cross. Now, you can say that I'm taking this too seriously. You can say that, hey, son, okay, sure, these ideas influenced people, but really, do people really still think of that kind of stuff? And maybe you're right. Because if you read Nietzsche in the original German, or you read people writing about Nietzsche in the original German, there is a sense of jest in Thus Spake Zarathustra. Also, Echo Homo and Genealogy of Morals, uh, Will to Powers, kind of a, a, an amalgam of different ideas put together by his equally demented sister. Uh, insanity seemed to run in the family. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But... In general, there's always this hint in Nietzsche's writings of any kind, of sort of an over-the-top hyperbole, a sense that his philosophy and his philosophical approach, he might a sense that he might not have taken it as seriously as everybody else did. And you get a sense from reading Nietzsche that it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek form of philosophical gaslighting at the expense of the West in general. Matter of fact, he was quoted um, speaking about his first book, The Birth of Tragedy, in 1872. He, he wrote a letter to somebody, and he said, and I quote, Scholarship, art, and philosophy are growing together inside of me to such an extent that one day I'm bound to give birth to centaurs. Well, I mean, at the end of that logic... At the end of that influence, at the end of that thought leadership, you get people really believing they can change their genders and that we all just kind of have to socially agree. It turns out the Nietzschean ideal had more power and had more influence in more areas than ever before, or than even he would have believed. Back to Thus Spake Zarathustra, uh, subtitle, A Book for None and All, by Friedrich Nietzsche. And I quote, Three metamorphoses of the spirit do I designate to you, how the spirit becometh a camel, the camel a lion, and the lion at last a child. Many heavy things are there for the spirit, the strong load-bearing spirit in which reverence dwelleth, for the heavy and the heaviest longeth its strength. What is heavy, so asketh the load-bearing spirit, that kneeleth it down like the camel, and wanteth to be well laden? What is the heaviest thing, ye heroes, asketh the load-bearing spirit, that I may take it upon me and rejoice in my strength? Is it not this, to humiliate oneself in order to mortify one's pride, to exhibit one's folly in order to mock at one's wisdom? Or is it this, to desert our cause when it celebrateth its triumph, to ascend high mountains, to tempt the tempterer? Or is it this, to feed on the acorns and grass of knowledge, and for the sake of truth to suffer hunger of soul? Or is it this, to be sick and dismiss comforters and make friends of the deaf who never hear thy requests? Or is it this, to go into foul water when it is the water of truth and not disclaim cold frogs and hot toads? Or is it this, to love those who despise us and give one's hand to the phantom when it is going to frighten us? All these heaviest things the load-bearing spirit taketh upon itself, and like the camel, which when laden hasteneth into the wilderness, so hasteneth the spirit into its wilderness." 
But in the loneliness, wilderness happens the second metamorphosis. Here the spirit becometh a lion. Freedom will it capture and lordship in its own wilderness. Its last lord it seeketh. Hostile will it be to him and to its last god. For victory will it struggle with the great dragon. What is the great dragon which the spirit is no longer inclined to call lord and god? Thou shalt is the great dragon called, but the spirit of the lion saith, I will. Thou shalt lieth in its path, sparkling with gold, scale-covered beast, and on every scale glittereth golden, thou shalt. The values of a thousand years glitter on those scales, and thus speaketh the mightiest of all dragons. All the values of things glitter on me. All values have been already been created, and all created values do I represent. Verily, there shall be no I will any more, thus speaketh the dragon. My brethren, wherefore is there need of the lion in the spirit? Why sufficeth not the beast of burden which renounceth its reverent? To create new values, that even the lion cannot yet accomplish, but to create itself freedom for new creating, that can the might of the lion do. To create itself freedom and give a holy nay even unto duty, for that, my brethren, there is need of the lion. To assume the right to new values, that is the formidable assumption for a load-bearing and reverent spirit. Verily, unto such a spirit is praying, it is praying in the work of a beast of prey. At its holiest, it once loved thou shalt. Now it is forced to find illusion and arbitrariness even in the holiest things, that it may capture freedom from its love. The line is needed for this capture. But tell me, my brethren, what the child can do, which even the lion could not do. Why hath the praying lion still to become a child? Innocence is the child, and forgetfulness, a new beginning, a new game, a self-rolling wheel, a first movement, a holy yay. Hey, for the game of creating, my brethren, there is needed a holy yay unto life. Its own will willeth now the spirit, his own world winneth the world's outcast. Three metamorphoses of the spirit I have I designated to you. How the spirit became a camel, the camel a lion, and the lion at last a child. Thus spake Zarathustra, and at that time he abode in the town which is called the Pied Tau. What the hell does all that mean? <laughs> Nietzsche was trying to create a theology of morals um, without God, but he was doing this in a in a clever mode of language. And I want to break that apart for people because you can hear things like this. You can read things like this. You can examine things like this and you can become confused, right? Um, I personally remember running across Nietzsche back in philosophy classes when I was 19 or 20. And uh, I kind of stared at it and then, and then moved on. Um, and I can remember very well-educated people with PhDs trying to explain it to me and it's still not making any sense. Because, quite frankly, you have to be able to pull the truth from everything else that Nietzsche is doing, all the other dances he's doing in his writing. If, as a leader, you're going to read this as one of the source documents for where your people are thinking. And so, Nietzsche, in his own time tended to think of himself as controversial because of this this little rhetorical dance he was doing based on his experience in philology and yet he struggled to publish most of his work during his time and i quote from the internet encyclopedia of philosophy article about nietzsche and his work um, mostly as a response to schopenhauer that's how this article is written so if you have an opportunity to go see it and go read it um, you will see it written as a response to schopenhauer and I quote directly, Nietzsche, as Jan's student Ulrich von Wilhelmitz Mollendorf famously charged, shunned source criticism, neglected linguistic analysis, couldn't be bothered to footnote, was generally ignorant of archaeology, and reviled the historical critical method, denouncing any intuition which deviates from his own and ascribed a complete misunderstanding of the study of antiquity to the age in which philology in Germany um, due to Gottfried Hermann and Karl Lachmann, was raised to an unprecedented height. In other words, Nietzsche wrote, and perhaps thought, like an undergraduate fine arts student who comes to the Fine Arts Academy believing that he or she knows everything about the history of art, 
knows the limits and expanses of his or her own talents or skills pretty well, and thus needs no instruction from people, texts, and experiences that came before him or her. In other words, Nietzsche wrote with a certain level of postmodern arrogance before it was cool. And because he touted a really spiffy mustache and was somewhat of a writing prodigy, um, and couldn't see much past his own nose in the academy, well, this is why his ideas were so profoundly influential on thinkers, cultural tastemakers, political actors, and finally the general public um, during the long and bloody an increasingly unintellectually serious 20th century, a century dominated by mass media, mass culture, mass books, and mass movements. Nietzsche was perfect for this time, which is why all of his stuff is beginning to break down. The other dynamic, and I mention the arts on purpose, not just because I have an arts background, and I do, but I mention the arts piece on purpose because um, Nietzsche believed himself to be an artist. He believed himself in the finest uh, Dionysian uh, uh, ideal. He believed that he himself was doing art, not doing history, not doing not doing philosophy, not doing philology, not even really doing scholarship. He believed he was doing art. And this idea, which, in you know, after Birth of Tragedy was published, he sort of publicly backed away from, but it definitely influenced and undergirded everything he wrote subsequent to Birth of Tragedy, including um, The Genealogy of Morals, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, Eke Homo, and of course, the book, the book we're reading passages from today, Thus Spake Zarathustra, he believed, he thought of himself as an artist. And so I want to make this point, I want to make this parallel. Nietzsche benefited, as Pablo Picasso did in the field of fine arts, or as D.W. Griffith did in cinema, or as William Randolph Hearst did in mass media at the beginning of the at the, well, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. He benefited, as all three of those mediocre men did, he benefited from being the first to go as far as he did. He was the first. He was the pioneer. He was the one that pushed the boundaries of philology and philosophy and then broke through to the other side using the technique of writing numerous, outrageous, and psychologically unprovable, at least at the time, claims, and then putting a line of truth or burying a line of truth deep within the sandwich of lies. If you don't believe me, here's a case in point from Thus Spake Zarathustra. And this is just one line. You can do this in line after line after line after line. This is a very solid critique of Nietzsche as a leader. Um, you can take this to the bank. So he writes that, and I quote, to create new values that even the lion cannot yet accomplish. This is true if you are comparing a lion to a human being, and if you're saying that the lion is coming across the dragon of Christianity, which has grown scales on it and grown fat and dominant over the last 2,000 years. Uh, and by the way, Christianity in sort of a religious, fundamental European context, which is the context, again, that Nietzsche was writing in, he probably would not have had much traction in America and honestly didn't get much traction in America, his ideas didn't anyway, until after World War II. But any practitioner of Christianity could tell you that to create new values that even the lion cannot yet accomplish, that is a prima facie truth with a capital T. But then he follows that up with, but to create freedom itself, or no, to create itself freedom for new creativity, that can the might of lion do. Which any practitioner of Christianity would tell you is an outright lie. Freedom is granted to human beings by God, whether you believe in that God or not, and then preserved by human institutions. The other thing that Nietzsche didn't really appreciate was the fact that, and we know this now, that once the human religious impulse is stripped away and the natural impulse is stripped away that even lies below that, once all that goes, human beings can't create their own values out of their own will. We just don't have the tools to be able to do it.
Back to the book. Back to Thus Spake Zarathustra. The William Kaufman translated edition. We're not reading the whole book. We're just reading selections from it by Frederick Nietzsche. And long selections because it kind of takes him a little while to poetically get rolling here. Back to the book. Somewhere there are still peoples and herds, but not with us, my brethren. Here there are states. A state? What is that? Well, open now your ears unto me, for now I will say unto you my word concerning the death of peoples. A state is called the coldest of all cold monsters. Coldly lieth it also, and this lie creepeth from its mouth. I, the state, am the people. It is a lie. Creators were they who created peoples and hung a faith and a love over them. Thus they served life. Destroyers are they who lay snares for many and call it the state. They hang a sword and a hundred cravings over them. Where there is still a people there, the state is not understood, but hated as the evil eye and as sin against laws and customs. This sign I give unto you, every people speaketh its language of good and evil. This is its neighbor's this its neighbor understandeth not. Its language hath it devised for itself in laws and customs. But the state lieth in all languages of good and evil, and whoever or and whatever it saith it lieth, and whatever it hath hath it stolen. False is everything in it, with stolen teeth it biteth, the biting one, false are even its bowels. Confusion of language of good and evil. This sign I give unto you is the sign of the state. Verily the will to death indicateth this sign. Verily it beckoneth unto the preachers of death. Many too are born, for the superfluous ones was the state devised. See just how it enticeth them to it, the many too many, how it swalloweth and cheweth and recheweth them. On earth there is nothing greater than I. It is I, who am the regulating finger of God, thus roareth the monster, and not only the long-eared and short-sighted fall upon their knees. Ah, even your ears, ye great souls, it whispereth its gloomy lies. Ah, it findeth out the rich hearts which willingly lavish themselves. Yea, it findeth you out too, ye conquerors of the old God. Weary ye become of the conflict, and now your weariness serveth the new idol. Heroes and honorable ones, it would fain set up around it. The new idol gladly a basketh in the sunshine of good consciences, the cold monster. Everything will it give you if you worship it, the new idol, thus it purchased the luster of your virtue and the glance of your proud eyes. It seeketh to allure by means of you the many too many, yea, a hellish artifice. He hath here been devised a death horse, jingling with the trappings of divine honors. Yea, a dying for many hath here been devised, which glorifieth itself as life, verily a hearty service unto all preachers of death. The state, I call it, where all poison drinkers, the good, the bad, the state, where all lose themselves, the good, the bad, the state, where the slow suicide of all is called life. Just see these superfluous ones. They steal the works of the inventors and the treasurers of the wise. Culture they call their theft, and everything becomes sicketh, sickness and trouble unto them. Just see these superfluous ones sick, are they always? They vomit their bile and call it a newspaper. They devour one another and cannot even digest themselves. Just see these superfluous ones, wealth they acquire and become poorer thereby, power they seek for, and above all the lover of power, much money, these impotent ones. See them clamor, these nimble apes, they clamber over one another and thus scuffle into the mud and the abyss. Toward the throne they all strive, it is their madness as if happiness sat on the throne. Oft times sitteth filth on the throne, and oft times also the throne on filth. Madmen they all seem to me, and clambering apes, and too eager, badly smelleth their idol to me, the cold monster, badly they all smell to me, these idolaters. My brethren, will ye suffocate in the fumes of their maws and appetites, better break the windows and jump into the open air. Do go out of the way of the bad odor. Withdraw from the idolatry of the superfluous. Do go out of the way of the bad odor. Withdraw from the steam of these human sacrifices. Open still remaineth the earth for great souls. Empty are still many sights for lone ones and twain ones around which floateth the odor of tranquil seas. Open still remaineth a free life for great souls. Verily he who possesseth little is so much the less possessed. Blessed be moderate poverty. There, are, there where the state ceaseth, there only commenceth the man who is not superfluous. There commenceth the song of the necessary ones, the single and irreplaceable melody. 
there where the state ceaseth. Pray look thither, my brethren. Do ye not see at the rainbow and the bridges of the supermen? Thus spake Zarathustra. Now you could read all that, and many people have. Um, you could read all of that as a critique of the 20th century coming before, or you can, as I said before, wonder if he wasn't just a little tongue-in-cheek or if he was genuinely upset at the empires that were surrounding him. As a Polish person, by the way, Nietzsche traced his lineage to Poland, although there's some controversy about whether or not he was actually, any of his family was actually born in Poland, but um, you can trace the dissatisfaction of Nietzsche through the empire building of Otto von Bismarck in an attempt to unite Saxony and Prussia and all the other German states in the center of a continent that was seeking to keep them apart. Um, meanwhile, being surrounded by the French, the English, uh, the Austro-Hungarians, and of course, the lurking monster in European thought, and even these days, the Russian bear. Nietzsche was writing in the midst of all of that. He was also writing at a time when proto-sociologists were coming onto the scene in a response to the work of both Hegel and that grand atheist David Hume. I quote from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy about Nietzsche and his work, and his work as a response to the claims of both Hegel and, and that, that poor guy who died in a library and barely got his work published during his lifetime, well, actually, after he was dead was when it was published, Karl Marx, you know, the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, and I quote from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. For alongside Paul Ray, he, meaning Nietzsche, came to the conviction that values, whether moral, political, aesthetic, or even metaphysical, were a function of drives which were themselves conditioned subconsciously throughout a long historical process. By the way, that's the historical dialectic. Old religious and platonic beliefs in good and evil as static metaphysical entities were, for both Ray and Nietzsche, to be replaced with a naturalistic and developmental account about how present-day values derive from a convoluted process of practical and often egotistical considerations. By the way, that idea would be brought to its full fruition first through the existentialists and then finally through the postmodernist deconstructionists, the Jacques Derrida's and the Michel Foucault's of the world. But where for Ray, like Darwin and Lamarck before him, acquired habits become inherited traits due to their role in helping both individuals and society survive better relative to their competitors, Nietzsche viewed the historical inculcation of moral sentiments as a reflection of group attempts to instantiate power aims. God, leaders. I wonder where we've heard that dogma recently within the last, I would say, 10 years in the West. Group attempts at power aims. The surrender of today for the sake of some promised future ideal. And, of course, his view that judgments are necessarily a function of the psychological fundament of their authors. These all represent criticisms Nietzsche had of the proto-socialists and Marxists that would march before him, or after him, such as it were, in the 20th century. Individuals who would take up his mantle without really fully ever reading his work. Or, at the very minimum, reading it through an anti-Semitic lens due to the menstruations of his sister, who married an anti-Semite, and then when Nietzsche died, got a hold of all of his work and started, well, rewriting and reordering it. The worldviews that Nietzsche criticized and critiqued, that idea that he had that historical inculcation of moral sentiments was a reflection of the group attempts to instantiate power aims, that would eventually be adopted by the grandchildren of nihilism and existentialist thought, the French deconstructionists. I've already mentioned them, Derrida and Michel Foucault and many, many others, whose own grandchildren now wield power and shape cultural thoughts and attitudes in social media, the academy, and increasingly in the corporate world. 
And I quote again from the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, just to Nietzsche-like hammer my point home. It is on the second level, a meta-historical level, that Nietzsche's genealogia proves its enduring originality. See? He went first. Nietzsche shows that the very attempt to reconstruct the story of development of morality, quote-unquote, as it really happened, is occluded by the recognition that the narrator of events is intrinsic to the story. Oh, well, look at that. That the historian himself is no will-less objective static point of observation, but was himself a perpetually becoming, value-lading dynamic of subjectivity who is every bit as historical and drive-constituted as the values he was trying to explain. Contrary to Darwinians of any stripe, Nietzsche recognized that historiography is never about quote-unquote getting the facts straight, but about interpreting it according to the drive-informed perspective in which the historian was embedded. Whereas the Darwinians interpreted the historical evolution of morality as if they themselves stood outside of it, for Nietzsche, quote, we count after the fact all the twelve trembling strokes of the clock of our experience, our lives, our being, alas, in the process, we keep losing the count, so we uh, remain necessarily strangers to ourselves. We do not understand ourselves. We have to keep ourselves confused, unquote. Values and also that conception of ourselves as the architects of values dynamically affects the way by which one interprets those values, such that the attempt to represent the first bell, that original value-free of the distortions of generations of overriding, reformulating, and above all, revaluing those values, becomes impossible. And by the way, I'll complete the thought, close quote, by the way, I'll complete the thought, because it becomes impossible, the only thing left to do is, just like the Joker in the Dark Knight, the only thing that's left is to burn it all down in order to make sure that you send a message. So, that was just a couple of samples from the spake or the spoke Zarathustra. You can read the whole thing translated with a preface by Walter Kaufman. Um, you can get this at any bookstore. Um, he kind of just goes on and on like this, talking about apostates and evils, talking about vanity and how he's fond of the sea, talking about Jews and God particularly the Old Testament God, who he really has a problem with, the voluntary beggar and the deception of the Last Supper, and of course all this leading to Nietzsche's idea of men becoming higher and higher and higher, ascending a ladder of hierarchy based on their own pure will to become... Yes, overmen, yes, supermen, but also to finally revivify an old tradition. I think that's what he was attempting to do, or at the very minimum, getting people to engage more with their own monster and acknowledge that it was there rather than the things that he was seeing in his time, which was a bunch of people running around pretending that they didn't have a monster. The problem is, time moves on, and there is no last man. There's just the next guy, or the next woman, or the next person. And on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and on. One thing we know for sure is that this world, and the people in it, will continue on, at least if you believe that old hoary book of the Bible, at least until Jesus returns with judgment, with the sword in his hand, ready to split bone from marrow and ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. 
The trouble with that idea, though, is that we live in a pagan time, and we are leading in a pagan time in the West. We threw off the old Christianity and the old morals. We allowed the new philosophers to rush in the door and define the world for us. And we didn't really think too much about the consequences of that. And now at the 21st century, when we have the ability not only to destroy ourselves multiple times over through old technology like atomic and nuclear weapons, but also through new technology like artificial intelligence, uh, <laughs> Hadrian colliders, and all of the other gee whiz things that we've developed up to and including social media, we have the ability to destroy ourselves behaviorally, psychologically, and spiritually just as well as we have the ability to destroy ourselves and our world physically. We've gotten the whole enchilada, uh, and now we don't know how to eat it. People will often ask me on this podcast, what are you doing here, Hasan? These podcast episodes, the ones where I have no guest on, but they're a little bit longer, they almost seem like preaching, they seem like sermons, or, or college lectures, such as it were. And often people are confused. These are my least listened to episodes, because people don't really know what to do with them, because it's really hard to listen to me for an hour, ramble on and on about something before I finally get to a point. That is, of course, why we have the shorts episodes. Those are two to four minutes, but in some cases, those are even more obscure than what I'm doing here on a longer hour or hour and a half long episode with a hard book. Nietzsche's a hard guy to wrap your arms around. I'll admit that. And we'll go back and I want to do an interview with um, with a podcast guest on here whom we've had on a couple of times, David Baumrucker. He has some interesting insights into Nietzsche and I want to, I want to grab his insights because I think on one level he'll fundamentally disagree with me about sort of where Nietzsche went or what the interpretations of the spake Zarathustra could potentially be. And we will have a vibrant conversation about that. But I do think he'll also agree with me about where we are at now in 2022 in the clearing at the end of the Nietzschean path. And fundamentally, that's why I did this podcast episode today. Because leaders, leaders, you are leading people. And we are at the end of the Nietzschean path. I fundamentally believe that. Not because I think we're going to find another philosopher. I think the world's too fractured for that. Not because I think we are going to find a new philosophical ideal. I don't find that either to be true. I think we are now at the end of chaos. And people are looking for someone, anyone, to do the hard work of building. Nietzsche was a man of tearing down, just like the deconstructionists and the existentialists were before him. The existentialists tried to claim that it was absurdity. And the deconstructionists tried to just claim that it was the logical end of the Nietzschean ideal. But all of them were about tearing down the tower, burning the whole thing down to the ground, as I said in the last segment. But they based their whole idea of setting stuff on fire on a man who died, allegedly, or not died, but went insane, allegedly, after allegedly witnessing the flogging of a horse at the other end of the piazza, Carlo Alberto. They're basing it on a man who was never critically examined in his own lifetime by his own peers, in America or in Europe, really. And of course, they're basing their entire thing on an uncritical examination of a man whose writings fundamentally at the end of the day are built on multiple lies wrapped around a core truth. But if you don't know what your own core truths are, how can you separate fact from the lie? What are leaders to gain from reading the philosophy, if you never took a philosophy class, of a man whose literary legacy was crowded by sycophants, the deluded, flim-flam men and women, and was deluded by even his own pen. How do we stay on the path as leaders in light of the fact that Nietzsche's writings, his philosophy, and his influence 
are so tremendously massive, and yet they are hidden in plain sight in our Western conceptions of who we are in a complicated, dangerous world. This isn't about an appeal to the Apollonian or to the Dionysian. I think those are foolish appeals. And fundamentally, I'm a Christian at the end of the day. So I follow the man Jesus. Whether Nietzsche liked him or not is kind of an irrelevancy to me. By the way, that phrase that I opened up with, which is right at the beginning when, when Zarathustra comes out of the mountain, comes down from the mountain, God is dead. Nietzsche didn't believe that this was a triumphant thing. He believed this was going to be a real problem. Most people, you know, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century, um, particularly atheists, people of an atheistic bent, uh, the Christopher Hitchens and the Sam Harris types of the world now, or uh, back in the day, um, well, you can figure out the names from back in the day, but those folks of that bend, they didn't understand he wasn't writing triumphantly. He was writing tragically. And again, with a tongue-in-cheek, trolling, gaslighting style, or with that tongue-in-cheek, trolling, gaslighting style, it's kind of hard to tell what he's really doing there. Nietzsche was fundamentally a blank slate, and leaders, tastemakers, thinkers, philosophers, cultural elites have written on him whatever they wanted because he was the first to be a blank slate in the space of philosophy. And he's a big enough blank slate which comp with complicated enough writings who died young enough where you can put almost anything you want on him. But it won't be the truth. There are four things that leaders can probably take from Nietzsche's writing. And the first one is watch out for mediocrity clothed in fine language. I don't think Nietzsche was that great a thinker. I don't think he was that complicated a thinker. I, I, I think he, he is given more complication, granted more complication than he actually possessed. I'm not taking away from anything from the man in the sphere of philology. I don't read Greek or Latin nearly as fluently as he does, but his atheism and his desire to find something that was in rebellion to God as a counterbalance to God that led him down the path of mediocrity. He was a mediocre writer in a revolutionary time. Leaders, watch out for mediocrity. Watch out for mediocrity in thought. Watch out for mediocrity in writing. Watch out for mediocrity in speech. And this does not mean somebody taking a stand or stating an opinion. This means, has the person actually thought out what they are saying? And can they be challenged on it and stand on it? Otherwise, it's just mediocre. Point number two, leaders, you're not a last man. There will be somebody else after you. Somebody can always sit in your spot. That doesn't mean you can't be a linchpin. That doesn't mean that people can't, the organization can't, the team can't hassle to find a replacement for you. As a matter of fact, they should. It should be a hassle for them to find a replacement for you. But what it fundamentally means is you're not the last man. That's your ego, and that's just as egotistical as anything that Nisha might have to say about the state or God or any of these other systems he was critiquing in, thus spake Zarathustra. Don't buy your own press and stop drinking your own Kool-Aid. There'll always be somebody else. The third thing leaders can take from the writings of Nietzsche, all of them, from Ecce Homo all the way to Thus Spake Zarathustra, is that leaders can be direct or indirect, but they cannot be cloudy for their followers. So for all of you who are listening, um, I'm a direct communicator. Uh, everything that I've said on the podcast up to this point and everything that I will say after this point in subsequent future podcasts, I speak directly. I believe but I can also speak indirectly. And I do that sometimes in interviews. Sometimes I do that on my shorts episodes. But I'm never cloudy. Everything's right there if you're paying attention. Leaders, make sure everything is right there in your messaging, your marketing, 
your persuasion. Let it be on the followers to pay attention. Finally, there are rules to this game, right? There are all kinds of rules, right? Nisha knew the rules, and he was trying to subvert them, while at the same time trying to create new rules. And that's an interesting two-step that could drive anybody, well, insane. And so leaders, you need to know the rules of the game. You need to know the rules of the game you're in, and you need to know why you're playing that game. You need to know what rules you're upholding and what rules you're willing to tear down. And by the way, you need to articulate that. A caveat, though, if you're going to be tearing down rules and tearing down institutions and tearing down systems, you better tell us all why. And then you better tell us what you're going to replace it with. Because otherwise, we're just wandering in chaos. And really, at this point in time in Western culture, who out here needs more of that? And well, that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and of course, Spotify. And leave a five-star review if you like the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast. Look, we need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way that you can help us actually grow this show. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started down the leadership path, uh, our products at, from HSCT Publishing can help you and your team do that. So check out our training webinars, our coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. And check out our video-based subscription service at leadingkeys.com. We've got books that will help you and your team grow. So pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And subscribe to the Little Red podcast we launched earlier this year with the same name as this Little Red book. My Boss Doesn't Care. 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss. And of course, pick up my most recent book, 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, written with Bradley Madigan. 
You're going to want to pick up a copy of that in April 2022. And you can get both of these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Kobo, and any other place you order books on demand. Finally, we are on YouTube, or I'm on YouTube, or someone around here is on YouTube. So like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing on YouTube and hit the subscribe button to get updates every single time we upload a new video, which we do that at least once a week. And subscribe to the Hassan Sorrells Presents Audio Experience podcast Yes, I have three podcasts on YouTube where I talk more casually with a wider range of people all about all matters that matter in the world today. Everything from fatherhood to criminal justice, Christianity to artificial intelligence. We cover the entire plethora of things that are floating around in my mind, and that's why it's called an audio experience. All right, well, that's it for me. Out.